Good night, my friend. You've come to join me here again. In this dream world, I've decided to take a brief rest in. In hibernation, still in my forest, sure, for I understand now that I can never leave it. But I am having a quick rest. Taking some time to do a little bit of thinking, that's all. Though I suspect that soon I will need to wake up. In fact, I think I am oversleeping a little, even as we speak. No. No, that's not true. Time doesn't exist. Only sleep for now. And I think I must wake up without alarm and without an alarm. Without the poisonous propaganda of a clock's ticking hands to monitor me and decide how much rest is enough for me. In this dream state, the colors are still bright as ever, and the backdrop still wondrous black velvet. My tarot cards have become even larger than before now. They are each perhaps half my height, right now, and growing as we speak. They are harder to carry in this dream, hauled over my back, strapped to me with a grotesque, oversized version of the black, sparkling material I normally use to wrap them up in. They grow heavier and heavier, begging for my attention. Fine. You have a message for me? I say, still in a loving way. As well as I possibly can, I shuffle them. They become lighter as I do so. What is the message from you that I must receive? I ask my deck, as one card slides itself towards me in my dream. I place my hands on it, and my hands are changing color. So I can see myself in my dreams. Interesting. They are first green, then red, then blue, then pink and they linger on a strange pale purple before turning to great claws with wonderful yellow talons, like an eagle's almost. This is how they decide to stay before my eyes in this dream. I will accept the hands of a noble beast, a flying guardian, a watcher in the sky for now. We will see. The card that turns itself over underneath my hands is the Seven of Cups, reversed. So listen, the Seven of Cups represents a dream world, whichever way you draw it, upright or reversed, it doesn't matter. You are in a dream world, it tells you. And I know this to be true. In fact, when in reality I drew this card in order to write you a story... I was surprised at just how clearly they knew what I had already written into my life, into my story. A dream world. However, when it is upright, the focus is on the dreaming itself. The act of imagining, perhaps, whether it is good or bad for you. But reversed, it calls you to action to return to reality. You can, however bring your dream world into your reality. You can create your own reality, 
inspired by the images you saw in the dream, perhaps. If that dream is aligned with who you truly are, who you are at your core, and what you believe in, what you know deep in your heart to be right and to be good. It is easy to be good and to act in accordance with your heart in a dream world, isn't it? But doing so in reality, that is the difficult part. There is a rumbling around me. I have been asleep here for some time, buried in the snow now, warm and safe and comfortable somehow. I feel conflict. I feel that danger approaches my woods. I have perhaps been intentionally blind to the fact that it's been approaching all this time, lumbering towards my safe haven like a terrible, vicious thing that cannot control itself. But I must challenge myself to pry my eyes open, even as the snow stings them. I must try somehow to open my eyes. How can I do it? In the meantime, dream a dream with me, my friends. A dream about the reversed Seven of Cups. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess who lived in a lovely castle. She lived happily there, with many friends all around her, with a loving family and beautiful dresses to match any feeling that passed through her mostly happy heart. The only problem was that she could not leave her castle. She didn't mind much at first. There was ample ground in the courtyard for her to feel the grass in the summer and play in the snow in the winter. There were some very well-cared-for trees in there that she could climb if she chose, or read in their shade, or dance around their trunks. She had music and laughter and love, but what she loved most was the castle's ancient and enormous library. The princess mostly loved to read the kind of stories you might expect a happy young princess to read about. Adventures, romances, fairy tales, stories about faraway lands and incredible people and beautiful creatures. Anywhere that wasn't where she was. Sure, she loved her home, and she had everything her heart could wish for. But what was that compared to what a mermaid had in the depths of the sea? What was that compared to the thrill a knight in shining armor must feel as he fights an awful, fire-breathing dragon? She loved getting lost in fantasy, in worlds she knew she would probably never experience. Perhaps it was because she had to look at those places instead of outside her window, at the kingdom below. Perhaps it was because she saw the people outside the castle gate, separated between her and them by a long, narrow stone bridge that crossed a deep and deadly chasm 
and the people were suffering. Hungry families asking the king for aid and being turned away. Soldiers marching home from battle for their king, marching across that narrow little bridge, exhausted and broken and injured and even worse, sometimes they didn't return at all. She heard whispers here and there of the king's indifference and cruelty, but she was always told, It's very complicated, much too complicated for you to understand. She was of course not told this by the king himself, for he was far too busy with affairs of state to attend the questions of a happy little princess. And so she nodded sagely, and did not seek to understand any more. For a time. When her father passed, his crown went to her brother. Her brother, the king, just as ruthless and cunning as her father had been. And there was something that itched deep in her chest. It felt small, very small. Smaller even than a little, tiny insect, sitting there, just behind her sternum, scratching, scratching, scratching at the bone. When she felt that scratching, she would go to the library and read a fairy tale. Sometimes that helped it go away. But the older and wiser she grew, for she was, make no mistake, a very wise girl. She just hadn't allowed herself to be so yet. The more those fairy tales ceased to scratch that itch. One day, the itch was so strong that she stood in the library, in front of a pile of her favorite books, and she screamed and threw them off the table and to the floor, with a great swipe of her arm. She saw what she had done, and she gasped and began to collect them. A guard passed by the library and looked in on her, but she waved him away, hiding her red and frantic eyes behind her hand. He kept on his march, as that was what he was told to do, and so he did it. She collected the beloved books in a pile and apologized to them. Then she sat in silence. She closed her eyes, and for the first time, she decided to listen to the itch instead of try to scratch it away with fantasy. She sat for a long time, because listening takes patience, you know. She heard a strange sound as she opened her eyes, and before her eyes, on a distant bookshelf, she saw something. It was a book, perhaps that's obvious to say. She could see no details about it, but it was just there, hanging in the air, floating, unwavering before her eyes. As her mouth dropped open in awe of the sight, it fell to the ground with a deep thud. Dust 
scattered around it. She went to the book. It seemed to be bound in a strange kind of leather she didn't recognize. Was it crocodile skin? No, it was too strange a shade of blue. Or was it violet or purple? For that. Was it a snake? No, the scales were too large. She couldn't tell. The book didn't have a title. She opened it and saw its handwritten pages. The writing inside it had been completed quickly. It was completed by a busy hand, determined to write as quickly as possible, perhaps to get on to different business. Elegant diagonal strokes, ink running out frequently, the writing was beautiful but also frenzied. The name inscribed in the front inside cover was a woman's name that she hadn't heard for some time. It was a woman's name that everyone in the castle was banned from speaking. A sorceress from long, long, long ago. From the ancient times. From the age of dragons. But the princess's father's father's father had defeated all the dragons in the land long ago. He had killed them all, and he had killed the evil witch who, the story told, had summoned the dragons in the first place. He had been lauded as a hero, and she had been immortalized as a villain. There were many stories like this the princess knew, for she was wise and she did not exactly believe this one. She didn't know why, other than that place within her chest itched whenever it was told. She quickly took the book, for she knew she wasn't allowed to have it, but she had to have it because it had so kindly offered itself to her, and when she clutched it to her chest, the itching went away, and so she knew it must be good. She scurried back to her chambers. Now for weeks, maybe months, she thought and thought and thought. She hardly ate nor slept, obsessed with the strange itching feeling she got when she looked out of her window and saw more and more hungry people, more and more wounded soldiers, and soon less and less of them. And at the same time, as she heard the people crying out for food, the more and more she saw shipments of grain and crop yields going into the castle for trade. And at the same time as she saw the wounded soldiers, shaking, entering the castle gates, the louder she heard the triumphant trumpets cry out the glory of their return. Oh, an itching, a terrible terrible scratching like never before, and this time she did not want to read a fairy tale to stop it. One night, when the castle was asleep, but the people below still kept their fires lit and tried desperately to stay warm, that itching was so strong she thought she would scream out into the window, though she knew it was useless to do so. She did it. No one heard her. 
well, no one that she could see. For, right when she screamed, that is when the witch's book fell open, and it fell open to a particular page. A page with a magic spell. She saw a symbol painted in blood at the top of the page, and she recognized it instantly. She picked up the book and ran to the great hall of portraits, kept dark and hidden mostly. She held up a candle to each face on the wall that she saw, kings and queens from long ago. She saw her father, her mother, her father's father and her father's mother, her father's father's father and her father's father. Ah. Yes. There she was, indeed. Ancient and covered in dust, the portrait was so poorly cared for. There were scratches across her face, and she could not see her great-great-grandmother's fiery eyes or her firmly set frown. But she could see around her neck that which she had noticed every time she had come to this hall, for it was so strange and so striking. Around her neck, hidden among strings of pearls and gold chains and sitting right at the bone in her chest where her great-great-granddaughter was prone to that unbearable itching, was a pendant, a gold curling horn, twisting and long, not from a ram, or a bull, or even a unicorn. Something else. She compared it to the one in the book. Identical. She heard something beside her and her candle blew out. She quickly lit it again, and her great-great-grandfather, covered in dragon's blood, sword in hand, eyes empty and skin transparent, stood before her, bellowing his ghastly, ghostly rage into her face. She wanted to run, she wanted to go to her chambers and hide under the covers and cry until morning. But that book in her hands anchored her in place, so all she could do was shriek into his face right in return. And this was no scream. This was a roar. The ghost's eyes widened in horror, and howling he was pulled back into the shadows. Dragged away, 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 and gone forever, though his horrified howls remained, until they faded into the whistling sound of the wind. She walked calmly back to her chambers, filled with a clarity she'd never quite experienced before. A lightness that came only when one faces one's worst fears and defeats them. Suddenly, one can face things even more terrible than their worst fears. Suddenly, 
one can do the impossible. The following day she asked her brother, the king, for a few things. He was too busy with affairs of state, too busy with nobles squabbling over money and land, too busy expanding his empire, managing everything, controlling everything. It is usually not good work, but it is always grueling work, controlling everything. But her requests, strange though they were, were simple and easily granted, and so he agreed. Everything she asked for would be sent to her rooms. Easy. Dozens of candles, plenty of chalk, water, earth, cinnamon, a few other herbs he didn't recognize, culverwort and butcher's broom. That was it, really. She didn't say what she wanted it for, because he didn't ask, and she didn't want to lie unless she had to, and she was glad that she didn't have to. She had to be patient and wait for a full moon. It was hard, because the people were growing more and more hungry and desperate. More frequently they came to the castle gates, crying out for help, for compassion, and not receiving it. I hear you, the princess wanted to say. I can help you. I have a plan, a wondrous plan. Just wait for me, please. She wanted to shout, but they couldn't hear her from her chambers. She also heard rumblings from the palace, for she was a wise girl, that the people had been unable to pay taxes, had been withholding crops for their own consumption. They were fighting back, she knew, in the only ways they knew how, and she knew that the king would punish them for it. But she had to be patient and wait for a full moon. And it came, it came as it always will, when we need it to help us change, to start anew, to forgive and release our old selves, and welcome and bless our new selves. It came to her. Right in the center of her windows, she threw them open and stood, allowing the freezing air to hit her skin. Ah, it is a good night. This is a good night, she said. She drew on her floor with the chalk, an enormous circle. Within it, she drew the best recreation she could of that horn in the book, and around her great-great-great-grandmother's neck. She placed candles around the circle and lit them one by one. She sat in the center of the circle. In an iron bowl, she set fire to the copious herbs she'd used her advantage to procure so quickly and in such great amount. She offered a thanks to the world for them, a little ashamed to be burning something that could have been given to someone who needed it more. But knowing that she had a plan, she kept going. But her great-great-great-grandmother's book had told her to always be grateful for what the earth brings you and so she offered gratitude. She sat in the circle and breathed in the scent. She chanted some words I dare not repeat here, over and over, for hours, all night, 
all throughout the full moon's journey across the sky. And at dawn, just before sunrise, she sat there still, and she saw the sleepy town below. They didn't know that today the king and his men would march down and wreak havoc on them. But the king didn't know that she would be there to greet them first. My people, the princess thought, for they were her people. Not because she lived in this country with them, and not because she was their princess, but because she saw now that she did not belong to books, to fairy tales, to stories, to adventures of far-off places. She belonged right here with them, in this land that she could not remember being green, but knew it once was and could be again. And in that green, there could be enough once more, and her people could be free, and so could she. She realized now that she was not the knight in shining armor, fighting the dragon. She didn't even want to be. She realized what she truly was. The guards and the king and the nobles had all gathered on their side of the narrow bridge, prepared to engage, prepared to descend upon the unwitting, sleeping town. But the princess did not fear. Even when they began to march forward, weapons drawn, headed towards her people, she did not fear. As the sun rose, she grinned, seeing it touch the white of the chalk on the ground, making it seem to catch fire before her very eyes. It wrapped her up in a big warm flame, not hot, but gentle rather. It didn't hurt when her feet turned into great claws, almost like those of an eagle. And it didn't hurt when her legs grew so large they began to collapse the stone floor beneath her. This didn't frighten her, for her arms stretched and strained and broke free of their old bones and grew new ones. New ones that reached up and shattered the ceiling above her. Below, the guards and the king and the nobles watched with horror as a dragon escaped from the princess's bedchamber. It circled the sky, diving happily and beautifully, shimmering and glistening in the daylight, and it plunged down to the bridge, standing between the guards. This had happened before. A dragon had attacked the castle long, long ago. And what had the great king, the current one's great-great-great-grandfather, done to save his country and to be remembered across time as a fearsome king? He had destroyed it. 
And so the king charged forward, sword drawn, with a great yell meaning to slay the beast. He would be loved for this, surely. He would be celebrated world over, surely. But the creature before him threw open its great wings and spread them so wide that no one would be able to cross the bridge. And as loud as the king's battle cry was, it was no match for the great rumbling roar that bellowed up from the beast's gut and erupted in scorching flames flying up into the sky. Into the sky, as a warning. The king had to brace himself lest the vibration from that roar shook him to the ground. Then the beast could crush him in one blow, or scorch him to cinder. Or scorch him to cinder. Why hadn't it, then? The dragon took a few steps backward, and the king pressed forward, his men charging her. She swiped them away like a pile of fantasy books off a table. She breathed fire once more, and it smelled of cinnamon. He looked into the beast's eyes, and he saw his bloodline. He saw his father and his mother looking back at him. He saw his father's father, and even a bit of his father's father's father, but he also saw someone else peeking through in there. Someone long forgotten who used to wear a curling horn for protection. And this beast before him also wore two curling horns at the top of its head, and the same determined frown. There were years of decadence and injustice in their blood, the dragon and the king. There were years of ill-gotten riches and meaningless wars, disguised in silk sheets and royal gowns, but in the dragon's eyes he saw no shame. He saw a very awake, very forgiving kind of strength. The kind of strength that guardians find when they are called to protect. He saw the kind of waking that must occur for a happy little princess to become a raging dragon. He saw her wake from her dream and become it. And though more guards rushed forward to attack, he cried at them to stand down. And so they did. Did he become a good king immediately? Perhaps not. But the palace could not get to the village to take what it did not deserve, because a great purple dragon was waiting for them, ever vigilant, protecting her people and her land from that day forward. I am dreaming, so let's fast forward many, many decades later. I roamed the earth for a long time, as you know, and I found this thriving village with a deserted castle just outside of it. There was snow on the ground, but inside each home was a big, warm fire and the smells of winter vegetable soups and fresh bread and fine cheese. Oh my. Music rang out into the howling night, from the tavern at the center of town, 
I looked in from the window, and I saw an old woman there, sitting by the fire in the center of a group, a necklace with a pendant sitting in the center of her chest with a gold, twisting dragon's horn. They clapped for her as she finished telling a wonderful fairy tale she remembered from long ago. They listened in awe, dreaming of magical worlds that sounded lovely, but were nothing compared to the absolute beauty and loveliness of the world in the center of this tavern, in the center of this village, in the center of this land, in this home we call the world. I watched in from the window. I felt the warmth of the fire on my face. At the same time, I heard that howling night all around me. Howling, screaming, whistling in the wind. Like the sound of king after king after king after king, who realized they hadn't wiped out the dragons after all. It is my dream and you are here with me, so you can enter the tavern if you like. Or, you can stay out here with me, protecting it from hungry, greedy ghosts of a time that we can put behind us, if we try hard enough. I wish I could protect more people and places. Not in a dream world, but in the... Ah. I see. Wishing is useless. Is desire. I desire to protect more people and places. It will not be easy. But I must find different ways to try, somehow. I know now why I cannot open my eyes. It is because I am not asleep. It makes sense. It is not the right time, you see, and let me explain. I thought I was hibernating, like a great bear, sleeping. But I must change course. Not sleeping, no, but rather undergoing a metamorphosis. A caterpillar in a chrysalis, I think I must be instead. Gathering strength, growing, changing, so that I can emerge soon and spread my great wings and protect my forest. Soon, soon, soon indeed. Good night, my friends. Hello there, and welcome to episode 133 of On a Dark Cold Night. This is your host, writer, podcaster, composer, team of one behind the podcast, Kristen Zaza. I hope you're doing all right out there. I know that many of my listeners in the States right now are going through quite a lot in, in so many different ways. 
So uh, I'm sending love to you and strength. I hope that you're safe and hanging in there. I'm thinking of you. I would like to send a couple of thank yous today. First to my newest patron, Marnie Pickens, who pledged a monthly amount in support of the podcast on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening and for wanting to help me do what I do, Marnie. I really appreciate it. Every patron of the show through Patreon receives access to my ever-growing soundtrack, so if you're interested in this as a perk, head on over to patreon.com slash darkcoldnight to learn more. If you're not interested in the soundtrack and instead would rather make a one-time donation, you can buy one or more metaphorical coffees in support of the show through coffee.com. Learn more at ko-fi.com slash darkcoldnight. And we always have t-shirts and hoodies available for purchase at bonfire.com slash on-a-dark-cold-night. I would also like to thank an iTunes user from Canada named Why Won't iTunes Let Me Review? I love that username, who left a very, very lovely five-star review for the show for me. Thank you so, so much. Why won't iTunes let me review? I'm very glad that iTunes did let you review. It means the world to me. If you're enjoying the show as well, I'd love it if you also left us a review on iTunes. It's a huge help, and I appreciate it a lot. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at A Dark Cold Night, Instagram at Dark Cold Night Podcast, and on my Facebook and YouTube pages just called On A Dark Cold Night. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Wherever you are and whatever you are going through, I hope you can get the rest you need tonight to wake up and do the work that you need to do to help the world be an even more loving, life-giving place. And I hold the same hope for myself tonight, too. Good night, my dear friends, and thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar.